Well, you can't read the room if you're not in the room, right? Everyone is in the digital room. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm Roger. And welcome to The Middle. Where we try to have thoughtful conversations. About awkward topics. On our search to find the middle. That's that phobic. I thought Bill Wall, I just owned up when he walked. A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. I act as if God exists. Put your masks on. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams, my childhood, with your empty words. Hey, Roger. Hey, Andy. How you doing? Not bad. How about you? Oh, yeah. I'm, um, I'm going through a move at the moment, which I think is a universal experience of being a pain in the ass. But I actually have a funny story that I, that I wanted to share with you. I was out of the shops the other day and um i came in and there were there was like urinals right so i was at the urinal and there were two spots to the left of me two free urinals to the left of me and one spare to the right and this indian man and his young son came in and the son used the one on the left the very left one for me and instead of the father choosing the one next to him he circumnavigated that one and stood next to me on the right and then proceeded to have a conversation with his son across me. What is going on? Like, why, why, would, why would that happen? Like, does he not want to stand next to his son because he splashes or something? Like, what, what is the explanation? What do, you, what do you think is going on there? I think it was a power play. Power play? Talk me through it. Have you read that um, Jordan Peterson book about the lobsters and dominance hierarchies? I have, but he, I missed the chapter on when the lobsters use the urinals. But yeah, that was um, that was a very strange experience. I mean, there's always a little bit of weirdness that happens at urinals, I find. Um, there's lots of different styles, you know, like I think that um, depending on people's comfort with the situation, you know, and then of course there are people who opt out of the urinals and go to the stalls, um, which there's no shame in that. But, you know, some people, what I mean by that is some people stand really far away and they're like waving their, their bits around and almost like, you know, look at me, I'm so proud of it. You know, I must be confident and others just try to hide as much as they can and like pretty much mount the urinal to kind of like hide everything and yeah just everything in between have you ever been to the toilets in like a train station particularly on the sydney rail network they've got these individual cubicles and they're like unisex so it's just basically a, a toilet and it's accessible out out from the like the open oh and the public ones where you just kind of like um it's it's kind of like almost a street post and you kind of just stick in here the thing i notice about it is they clean it and it's it's like fresh and, and new but then gradually over the course of the day like the the first person accidentally pisses like on the seat or something and then so the next person is just like five centimeters away from it just to avoid whatever mess is on the floor and by the end of the day like people are basically pissing from like three meters back to try and like because they don't want to go anywhere near the the toilet and there's just this absolute mayhem of a toilet it's so true um, unfortunately, public toilets are like that. You know how sometimes when you see urinals, they have like a metal grate and you can choose to either stand on the grate, which I think is what's designed for you to do. Oh, no one ever does. Or no one, for the same reason that they're, they're worried someone, some idiots pissed on the grate. So they're like, fuck no, I'm not standing on the grate. So everyone just moves further and further back until they're launching from, you know, like a meter out. Um, so so what's worse about like those toilets at the station is that they, they're unisex, right? So these poor women- very, very surprising to- from like well, but, but like, don't you feel sorry for the women that have to use these toilets? So like, all these blokes have pissed all over, the, like, not just the seat, but 
even like three meters surround, like even on the walls and shit, there's like piss. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I do feel sorry for them just having to be in a man's space when it comes to that because men are notoriously um, shameless. But I would say this though, and there's this mystique or myth that female toilets, like you go into a female toilets and it'd be like, you know, the, the beauty section of Maya, like where there's people spraying perfume and bright lights and people in white coats kind of thing. It's not. It's just as terrible, if not more. Like I think that's the that's the secret. Women are actually filthy when it comes to their toilet spaces. And I actually remember this um, long-running, multi-month inquest in my office years ago. So if anyone's listening at work, you know, no one, no one that you know, wink, wink, where there was this thing happening in the female toilets, and it got so bad that the female director at the time had to summon all the women on the floor together for a meeting to talk about how bad it was getting and that there were being complaints that they made like feces smeared on the walls not smeared on the wall different kind of like issues and stuff and it became like this witch hunt where people then all the women on the floor out of preservation so that they wouldn't be you know smeared so to speak with this um crime they came they like they turned on each other and it was like a big witch hunt on oh i saw samantha go to the toilet at you know 1205 and she came out and then i went in and then i saw the poo on the wall and it became this huge witch hunt then like the director was like oh my god this is just not helping the situation <laughs> so yes you know women are not always uh, more clean than men before we move off of this i don't want to spend the whole episode talking about urinals what are the craziest urinals that you've experienced hmm that's a good question because you're well, quite a, you know, you're quite a learned, travelled kind of fellow. I spent a year living in China, so like the worst ten percent of experiences in Australia wouldn't even make the top ten of um, really bad, bad examples in in China. All right, well let's uh, let's go to the bottom first, as you do, and tell us the worst Chinese experience. Just well, describe it because people know it's bad, but then I need you to tell me why it's bad. Okay, so this is not a urinal. This is a truck pulls up at the traffic light opens the door and a dude just takes a leak out of the out of the car onto the road at the traffic light did they find you for doing that where we're going we don't have fines was it moving like did it was he still going well it was, it was stopped it was stopped at the traffic light but like it was it was just open the door psh, splash <laughs> take a slash timing that and i um, respect him yeah. he didn't pee on, he didn't like go on someone's car though did he uh well on the on the road itself yeah that's thoughtful yeah. though right like he yeah. could you know aimed at someone's car or something <laughs> Do you think there's like memes on TikTok of like Westerners using squat toilets? I've got in my mind like a picture of like Butters from South Park with his pants down to his ankles taking a piss. That's kind of the equivalent. Yeah, I mean, I just don't know how they get the f- the footage. <laughs> Someone, actually, I probably do because there's another big thing about Asian toilets is there tends to be no door on the on the stall for some reason. I don't know why. The surveillance state. It's like asshole recognition, but um. Yeah, I think like that is the ultimate power move when you talk about butters and dropping his pants because um, this bogan do it um, once when I was at this beach, one of the northern beaches, he just came in in his thongs and he just dropped it, dropped the dax and just, you know, crumpled around his ankles, did the whole lean forward, hand on the wall, <laughs> took a pierce, you know, he's living life. That's a, Actually, that's a, that's a question. Do you do the lean forward and stabilize yourself like a tripod? Um, I do it at home. I don't do it at a public toilet because my goal in a public toilet is like mission, you know, Tom Cruise when he tries to get lowered down into that sensitive room with all the sensors. I try to like, what's the least amount of surface area that I can touch? And and like, so I'm, I'm like a monkey, man. I'm using my foot 
to open the door. Let me talk you through this one. So I do use the, the tripod method and this is where you lean up against the wall. And let me, let me talk you through the rationale, right? So you know with great certainty that there's piss on the floor, right? Yep. So the goal is to stand as far away from the actual urinal as possible, but to facilitate that, and to get yourself as close to the urinal as possible, you have to lean forward. So smooth criminal, I like it. Yeah, and and, and to your point around not touching stuff, the key is you get your fingers, not the palm, but just the fingertips, but you find somewhere high up where probably others wouldn't put their hands, and you do and you do it from there. Like so, you choose somewhere on the wall that like no one else oh, would man. touch, and that's completely away. And then you just lean forward. And yeah, it, I've seen it, but I still don't trust the wall. But just as an aside, that wouldn't work for me because obviously you're over six foot and I'm not. So I would get the lowly, like the, the piss, piss wall get, and you get right, you, you're like you the giraffe the... that gets the top of the uh, canopy. Wouldn't it be hilarious though, Andy, if it was like somehow the tripod method was some analogy for our modern evolution and it's like the people that evolved to be taller were more successful because they stayed away from the pathogens of the fu- fucking public toilet. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt the podcast. Andy and I have really enjoyed doing this. And while we don't want your money or anything like that, it's been great to see the number of our listeners grow since we kicked things off last year. The best way for us to reach more people is word of mouth. So if you'd like to support us, then we'd be really grateful if you could share it to a friend or someone that you think might enjoy the podcast. We know there's a conversation for everyone. So please pick an episode that you think that they'd like and share away. That ends our shameless plug and we'll return you now back to the episode. All right. Well, what are, what are we talking about today? I've, I've lost track. A month or two ago, we recorded an episode on boomers, didn't we? Yeah. So this is like the um, the sequel to that, which is us ragging on the generation younger than us. I don't know what are they called again. Gen Z. Gen Z. Yeah, the weakest generation. Yeah, I don't know. Like, do you, do you ever kind of have you had this experience either dealing with your dad, especially, or maybe an uncle, where you're just like, oh, where did it all go wrong? You're just like a grumpy old man now. Everything seems to trigger you. Everything seems to bother you, right? You have such a view and complaining about things that are so petty as well. Like, have you ever had that experience? I, I think like that is just a general when you get, when people get older, they just become like, they're just a bit over it. But I do think there's obviously like change over generations. And when looking at, the, you know, some of the older generations, they were just like a, a lot tougher. And so there's this like declining level of resilience across the generations. And I think like that's part of what they're reacting to. I I definitely have had that experience, right? Of like my dad or my uncles and stuff having that negative worldview at times. And I've noticed myself start to get into that space a bit more as I've aged. And so we thought today maybe we'd have just a session, you know, just to get it off our chest so we can be take the role of grumpy old men and actually just talk about the things that really grind our gears that kind of piss us off or big and small. So I want to start with something that I prepped coming into this literally just before we hit the uh, record button. I watched a video on YouTube which played a snippet, like a, a 10, 15 second snippet of the top song from every month since 1980 right up to right now. and. Yeah. You go through that list, so you're hearing all sorts of like weird stuff in the 80s, and then you get to the 90s, 2000s, 2010s. Was um, Rock Lobster on there? Ah, uh, might have been, but I can't remember. It was a bit of like a whirlwind 
experience, so I can't I can't remember. But I was listening to the songs. And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, I know all of these songs. What shocked me was like how I was like engaged with it as far as long as I was. Right? Where, yeah. Where did you fall off? So I fell off around 2018. Wow. Um, which was a lot farther into it than than I was expecting. But the reason why 2018, like, I sort of picked that as as the year is that. Like the music from like it's so shit. Like the not just because I didn't know the songs, but like the actual songs were really shit. So, like they had nothing. Were, they, were there new to genres it, like, that came in, or was it all just pop music the whole time? Uh well, it was all pop. But like throughout the forty years, you had yeah you know, rock and pop and rap and R and B and all that. Okay, so it had had everything. Yeah, well, it was like the most whatever that was the most. Um, they must have used charts or whatever, right? All the genres were represented, but it was the top song of the month, right? Yeah, but that, that last five years really was really shit. Even if the songs weren't sophisticated or there wasn't much to them, they weren't even like good or kind of hooky songs. They were just- They weren't catchy at all or anything. Yeah, they were just really shit. Like at least, certainly the last 20 years, like there's a lot of, you can hear where the songs have just gone downhill a little bit in terms of they've just become really tropey and poppy and whatever. But the last five years in particular, like they're not even- exciting to listen to right they're just really boring songs did you kind of get to a point where you just didn't you never even heard of the artists uh well there were some that i knew but i can't even explain it like they they didn't they didn't have any melody they were they were you know they weren't sung well they were just some some guy like whining like it was it was just <laughs> like against some really lame sort of beat and no no melody like it was i don't know yeah well i mean i commend you because i would have I'm sure I would have fallen off way before 2018. I, I haven't listened to new music for so long. I feel like um, I went into the desert of parenthood and I just craved the music that I already knew and I didn't really listen to anything new apart from one or two standout hits here and there. I just think it's, it's generally hard to keep up with this stuff as you age because you just don't have the time to devote to discovering new music, right? And um you know that culture back when you were a kid where you had some kind of music channel on quite frequently because, you know, you were listening to things and it was entertaining with music videos and stuff. I just don't see that happening as much anymore. Um, Tell you what else I noticed. The, the video clips became really shit too. Like they yeah. were well, kind of these big... And stuff, like these channels. Like those, when streaming came out, there was this emergence of dedicated music channels and I thought they would proliferate rather than nah, reduce. You know, the budgets for... These video clips are very limited to whatever someone can like knock together on their yeah. laptop, sort of thing. Yeah, you know what it probably is, though, Andy. It's like as a young man in our day, if you wanted to see beautiful women and sexy images, music videos kind of scratch that itch in a lot of ways. Like you, you could definitely see a few videos that were pretty scandalous and some bikini pics and you know some things like that. A horny, a horned up teenage boy watching Christina Aguilera's "Dirty," right? Like that is hundred <laughs> percent scratching that kind of hornback itch for that kid. Yeah, but he didn't go and buy the record, did he? Well, that's true. But he's discovered <laughs> the music and he's found out that he is actually a genie trapped in a bottle and um is gonna check out the back catalogue. So on the music front, the other dimension is like live music because when I was younger, like after finishing school, going to live music, that was um pretty important to, to growing up, I think. I don't know, like uh, young kids today don't seem to do that. Maybe it's the the death of rock, maybe, do you think? Because I'm not saying that all live music is is that, but for um, this appeal of this really like sex, drugs and rock and roll and the kind of 
coming of age of going to your first concert or first really crazy rock concert or something. It's probably more like electronic music, right? And yeah, Future yeah. and all those kind of festivals. And well, like this is the problem, right? If you make music in front of a computer in your dungeon at home, you're not really geared up to be a live artist, right? It's not something that has like a dimension to it that's interesting to watch live. Whereas Dude, there are tons of lasers and, and shit like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do wonder what, what our kids' first concert they'll drag us to um, will be. Right, like, has your boy shown any interest in music and certain bands? Rock is not a thing anymore, right? That's it's just that's just not on the radar at all. Any um, collabs that he's uh, he's onto? He he really likes Stranger Things, the TV show on Netflix. Yeah. And before when I was talking about that list, right, the the top song for every month since the eighties, right? So it went through to yeah, you go through every single song, and then you get to like I don't know, what was it like? July 2022, and the top song was Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush. And so, like, you know, which is a, you know, quite an old song. And because Stranger Things is set in the 80s and it's really synth heavy and all of that, he's quite into some of that stuff. So we've been playing, like, the the songs from, from Stranger Things. And for anyone who watched the season from 2022, there's this scene with um, this guy and he plays guitar to Master of Puppets. On, on the roof uh, by Metallica. And it was just this kind of like way I could slip in a little bit of kind of my music and not just like I had it. He was listening to like Pass the Duchy and all this other stuff, but all these songs feature in Stranger Things. And yeah, like there's some weird stuff. Yeah, he got into some of those old songs. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it's, it's nice to pass on a bit of influence uh, along the way or discovering music. All right, let's move on to a different area. And I want to talk about things that now, you know, we've both spent a decade or so in the jungle of the workplace, things that kind of just, you know, just grind your gears on, um, on office culture. There are so many things, but let's, uh, let's jump in with a few. So I want to start with one that I think will be interesting given how I know that you work, but, <laughs> um, loaded question. So return to office after COVID. Mm -hmm. um, there's a generation of younger workers who I think either it, it's one of two things they've either gotten used to working from home over COVID and then but then come like maybe they did go in the office before COVID but then they're more malleable and open-minded to sort of the notion that it can be changed up and then you have like almost three years of people who you know, has spent their whole career working from home, you know, if you started, um, entered the workforce during COVID. But that for me blends into a broader story around kind of what work, what the workplace owes you versus what you owe the workplace, given that you're employed in a job. But um, yeah, I, I'm curious what you think about that, because I know that um, you still yourself permanently work from home, if I understand correctly. Yeah, so it's um, it's changing a little bit, but I pri I primarily work from home. That's for sure. And um, how many? How many? Give, give us uh, give us a, a story around that. Like how many days a week from home? Yeah, like I'll be lucky. Um, it's like I said, it's changing. But there have been periods where I've been full time at home, and there's others where I, it's been like you know one or two days every month, kind of thing, if that. So it's been a period of of and and that's due to obviously circumstances in my particular job, my particular team. 
and the people and my colleagues that I work with, right? They're not all just sitting in the office and I'm the one that's opted out, not wanting to go in. They're in different locations and time zones and all sorts of things. So that is my little spiel to make me not look so bad. Look, I, th- I think that it's, uh, it's the f- with flexibility always puts a strain on um, coordination, I think. And I can see that and I'm sympathetic to that. Um, I also think that, that everyone's got a different work style and just general factors that may influence them to be either a little bit more um, industrious or self-regulating or disciplined rather than others. So I think some people strive thrive a bit better than others when in the work from home environment. And you, you know what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm trying to be nice about it, but there are some that actually do really need a firm hand to guide them and they, they might actually enjoy that. Um, and there, there are others that need it and they don't enjoy it. And those are the ones that are the problem when they work from home. And this may be because you are junior, like you've said, and you need that kind of support. It could also be that you're just a bit overconfident or you, you're kind of harder to manage or to, to, you know, to whatever it is. But um, yeah, it definitely doesn't work for all people. That's, that's for sure. I just like the idea of it because in most major cities, the commute is just so bad. Like, come on. The, you think of the craziest shit that's happened to you in your life. It doesn't make any sense. And I think that's one of the things that the pandemic has shown us, right? Like there is a way to do it and it's about finding time. And one of the ways of finding time is to reduce your commute by working from home, right? And that's a real material game. You know, a long commute every day, five days a week is can be a bit... You know, a lot of people do it. Can be rubbish. But then, you know, like if you're an employer um, in the longer run, you're going to say, well, if I don't have any confidence that my staff are meeting, whether in like either that their own performance isn't good because it's not because it's not being appropriately monitored or or managed or people aren't developing in the longer longer term the skills that they need um, collaboration isn't there productivity's down that that's going to have flow on effects to the people who want to work from home and you know I think you you might have a bifurcated labor market in the future where you'll have you know the workforce that's used to going into the office and you know, the expectations of, of some employers will be going to the office and this is, you know, this is the deal. You you get paid, you know, this amount of money if you come in and then there'll be the workforce who will only take jobs at home. And I think what you might find is, you know, the, the those who really want jobs working from home might not have the same access to opportunities. So I think that's that's how it will sort of sort itself out in the wash, I guess. Yeah, big call. Cool. Well, it's happening already. Well, it's not happening now well, it is. I mean, there are outcomes. jobs saying that, you know, you need to come to the office and if you don't want to come to the office, don't bother applying, right? No, no. I mean, that that's not the same as you're saying that there'll be different, lesser opportunities for people that work from home. Primarily. Well, there is. I mean, there currently is because if you if you want to work from home, if that's your preference, your life preference, then there are lots of jobs you, at the moment, probably most jobs, um, you can't apply for. They're, they're no longer work from home. Most offices have implemented some kind of partial return. They're not full-time return. I don't actually know of that many that have enforced full-time return. Well, not full-time five days a week, but um, three or four days, definitely. So if you're someone who doesn't want to do three or four days a week, you you will be absolutely excluding yourself from opportunities in the labor market because that's increasingly the expectation. And I'm sure... Some workplaces are still okay with it. Those will be the ones that that might attract, you know, that cohort of people who want to work from home. Everything that I'm hearing at the moment on this topic is that companies have reached out and said, it's now policy that your teams 
come into the office a minimum of two days a week, between two and three days a week. And they're trying to kind of get each team to work out what suits them. And that's the general policy that's kind of in my industry in most of the capital cities, right? But what's really going on is that teams are not doing that. They're coming in sporadically for workshops. They're doing this, they're doing that, but they're definitely not meeting those milestones and no one's enforcing them. And the reason they're doing that is because the people that are trying to enforce it all the way up the company benefit from the flexibility as well. I'm going to disprove you. How are you going to do that? If you just bear with me. All right. So I'm going to dispute what you've just said by saying that's actually not what's borne out in the data. So the data is, and I'm reading an article here from The Guardian, which says Sydney CPD is pretty much at 80% recovery in terms of number of people at any one time working in offices. And we don't think it'll get any higher. So definitely there's, there's a reduction, but this is transport data. This is from the 13th of March. So it's earlier this year, but in terms of transport data, public transport data into Sydney CBDs, it's only 20% down from pre-COVID. So if you broadly translate that into a you know, what's the average sort of days in the office per week in a CBD? That's four days out of the five. Now, I think there might be some distributional differences, yeah. you know, that might pick up, <laughs> you know, people who, you know, work in a hospital, for example, are still probably five days a week and have always been five days a week. But I definitely think the story you've painted undersells. Well, like Andy, I did say in my industry, in my industry, I don't, I don't know anyone who's going in, even even senior people that's going in more than say top top line three days a week, uh, and it's often very flexible. There's actually this uh, this Slack stream that goes around with people that um, are taking pictures of their office floor, <laughs> and they're so empty. All like the all the major companies that the office floors are really really empty. Well, the other thing too, like if a person wants to, or young, I mean, this is, we're talking about younger people with this sort of attitude, want to dissolve yourself into being, you know, your existence is someone who works from home, you're this remote worker, they may as well hire someone from the Philippines or country with cheaper labor costs, right? (laughs) Because that's all you are. You're just uh, some person at the end of a computer, like a satellite person that that isn't really integrated into a team. Now, I guess one of the things that some of us that were in the labor market had going for us going into COVID was that we uh, we we already had relationships within a team. I get it for new people. Like I, I did, I did kind of say that at the start. Like I do understand new people that need to be trained. But I, I mean, during COVID, we've all worked with people that we never met, and it was effective. Well, I don't know if it was. I think that it was not as effective as it would have been, like if we were in the office, like take all your points around commute times and, you know, the benefit of working from home. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I think to sort of say it's effective as though it's like a like-for-like substitute, I think that's, yeah, I probably would, would not agree with that. But I guess it's all about trade-offs, right? So what I think might happen is maybe some workplaces where they can kind of manage work from home relatively efficiently, maybe they will sort of say, well, why would we pay for an office and why wouldn't we take advantage of the fact that working from home full-time is like an appealing you know, attribute of the workplace for, for people and we can attract talent that way and why wouldn't they do that? But I think for most workplaces, those conditions don't exist, like for, for those workplaces to operate efficiently. And I think you know, that that we're people and we need sort of the full spectrum of um, ways that people engage to 
well, you we, know, work we, effectively we in the workplace. We, we thought we did, right? We're learning more things. Like I think it's a real challenge to the current styles of leadership, management, and organization, but that needs to evolve as well. If you kind of take the average sort of, you know, typical job out there, it isn't quite like what you've said. Like I think the average typical job does need from its people a whole bunch of things which aren't clearly and immediately obvious, like things like judgment. Well, make them and, obvious. Pardon? Make them obvious, like spend more time together. Like why well, can't you, well, you do that on a remote session? Well, but you can't. Like, how, how, like it doesn't work that way. Like things like judgment, right? Judgment is this black box thing that, you know, it's hard to put your finger on. Like you can't, like judgment's about learning the environment within which everyone else is operating within. Like it's it's observing others who are more senior than you so you can kind of pick up what they're doing and how they're doing it so you can yourself like have better judgment like th- these are the kinds of things that, that why can't you do that need from people well because how, how you you don't observe people you do you can't observe people from your computer we, we have, at your of, home in your bedroom town halls town hall meetings with no but you don't observe people other people working you, you don't observe your colleague having it out with their boss you know, and that, and that allows you to know like how far you can push things and how that gets treated. Like, like, and if th- you're talking th- about like witnessing a, a confrontation in the open plan office between, yes, absolutely, absolutely, because that's an example, right? That's one of the thousand things that you get from being in the office, right? Seeing like how far you can push the limits and what's actually expected of you. You're seeing the other person. team meetings too but online, you, but it doesn't happen in that environment. Like if you're having a team meeting, you're having it's a very orchestrated thing, right? But I guess what I'm talking about is, do you even know what your colleagues are working on? You might know because they've told you at some team meeting, oh, I'm working on this list of three things, but you don't really understand what those things are. But if you're sitting next to them in an office. Like eavesdropping on the office, is that you get some insight? Don't want to harp on those examples, but I'm just trying to point, like, paint a picture that there's a far broader, richer suite of experiences you have in a communal workplace that you can't have at home. Like, if you, you know, have a, a remote workforce, you're going to lose all of that. And we don't really know what the costs of those well, are, really. Yeah. I mean, I'm just challenging that you will lose all of that because there's not much you can't do with spending time with mentors and people uh, remotely to still pick up that stuff. It's like saying someone can explain to you how to ride a bike. That's how I see it. Like you've got to immerse yourself to get the benefit from it and to approach it with like a mindset that if someone can put a PowerPoint up and explain how to ride a bike and then you'll suddenly know how to ride a bike. Is it that, that to me is sort of, yeah, you might have like a mental model of how it works, but you actually have to have a, have a go. And it's the same like with the office, right? It, there's this like rich sort of depth of information that you are cut off from. I think we have different attitudes on how that information is then could be and is distilled into a digital environment. Um, and I think that's just a difference in kind of maybe our experiences of industry, but like knowledge base and stuff is is being blended all the time when it comes to that stuff in my, in my world. It depends on, obviously every job's completely different, but any role that is fundamentally human to human, right? It, it depends on human interaction and there's a human element in it. Like I don't think you can digitize that right humans are, are much richer than what any system can kind of they might be capture but this is business in. right like this is not rela- like sometimes i think it's a bit overstated as like the dark arts of you know middle management and it's not it's really not that complicated they might build a bit of more rapport but it's just way more organized and 
the tools that you have to distill complex knowledge are better facilitated in a digital format, in my opinion. But I think when you're it comes picking up, but, but see, I think you're picking up on all of the transactional stuff, right? All of the, you know, here's this thing that's got to be done. Is it better to do it in person in a physical meeting to convey the knowledge or is it better just to, you, you know, use some good systems and tools, right, that you could use remotely? Yeah. But I, I'm kind of not really talking about that. I'm kind of talking about the more subtle stuff, that the stuff that you can't even put your finger on. And every workplace is different, but for some jobs you need to understand why you're doing what you're doing or you need to understand the context within which you're operating. You need to understand the psychology of the person who's given it, you know, you a job yeah. to do and why they've given it to you to do it and how you're supposed to do it and how you're supposed to talk to a person. Part of doing that job effectively is to have that broader view that and I think I guess just to circle back to the young sort of people in in the workplace, they don't have that context to begin with. I hear what you mean, Andy, but I just think that when you're trying to describe it and you're saying that, you know, you can't put your finger on some of this stuff, I just think that more effort needs to distill them down. Because some of the things that you're talking about absolutely can be taught around meeting people in presentation styles, being able to read the room, understand change management situations. <laughs> well, you can't read the room if you're not in the room, right? Everyone is in the digital room. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Maybe we should talk about a broader conversation about younger yeah. people in the workplace. Probably the biggest difference that I see when they first start and the changes from kind of my experiences is probably entitlement. Now, I think that they know deep down that ambition and kind of pushing for accomplishments to rise through those early ranks needs active support. And I think they've been raised in an environment that sums up that kind of, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get. And so they really, I think, are always pushing for that affirmation of their position in the company and their value in the company. And I think it consumes them and it consumes way too much space in their early years. And I think in their mind, it's very much like, I need to just rise through these early ranks, get that out of the way, because I know I can do what some of my colleagues can do. It's just my age. And this is just some ageist bullshit. And I need to kind of quickly get there as fast as I can. And so that's kind of been my negative experiences with it. I don't know whether you've come across any of that behavior um, on your journeys, but um, I think that's how I would sum it up. I actually don't know if this is a change over time. Like I think there's always been this sort of vibe of kind of young people nipping on the heels of whippersnippers. Yeah, like that that that's always been a thing. Like one of the things that happens inevitably is, you know, you have people who are they're successful at university. They've been told their whole lives how great they are. They get their job and you know their dream job or whatever. And then, you know, they come in thinking of, you know, a certain sort of self-image of themselves. And they submit their first piece of work and it comes back, red line, marked up, changes, <laughs> re completely rewritten. And they're like, what? I did like, an, like this amazing job. Like I was expecting them to like say how wonderful I was and I get this document that's like basically all red. And yeah, just that kind of rejection of feedback. Like I don't think that's a new thing, but like you definitely can see a difference between those who take the feedback on board and those that like really get upset about it and maybe even reject the feedback. Yeah, I get that. But I do think that the the entitlement moves up and the ambition moves up uh, a little bit more. And people would say that about our generation as well, for sure. 
every generation coming up. But I, I think that um, it's more overt and aggressive now. There used to be this thing about, you know, coming into your first graduate role, it didn't really matter that it was you at the bottom of the food chain, the shock from a university salary to getting your first job was more than enough to compensate for any of that. You can now literally afford most things that you want to buy. But it's not really like that anymore. It's um, it's this real a mixture between, like I said, this kind of longing ambition to cold resentment, the fact that maybe they feel that they're more talented than their, than their more established colleagues. And I kind of have, have noticed that a little bit more, I suppose, in my, in my areas. I've probably picked that up less on the career side of things, but more in other ways. So, you know, entitlement for like, what is the responsibilities of the employer versus the employee? So the view that, no, it's the employer's responsibility to look after me, basically, in a way that I don't think was the case in the past. So where it's like, no, no, the employer has responsibility for me not performing, or the employer has responsibility to look after me if I'm, you know, struggling at the moment or whatever. Whereas, you know, I think back in the day it was... I have the responsibility if I'm not performing or I have the responsibility to pull my, you know, myself out of whatever you know I'm going through right now and, and get back up operational. And I think that's partly kind of a change in maybe society and maybe accepting more problems and, and having a, a broader view of maybe the challenges that people go through. I don't know. I think it's like it's, it's attitudes towards leadership as well, right? Like... I, I see that change as well, right? So it's kind of in line with what you're saying. So I think that um, an old school approach to leadership would be more like a familiar, like a, a family approach to it, right? Like your boss is your dad and he's like the man in charge and but he's also there to look after you, but he's more than within his rights to discipline you if he sees fit for whatever reason, but he does it because he loves you and all this kind of stuff, right? So I think it's like a, a change of this this idea of what, being a leader means to young people. It's like, it's not that you just get my respect and that you get to make all these captain calls and, and you know, you have my admiration. It's actually, no, you need to, I need to feel like my middle manager, like I feel about Barack Obama. Like, you know what I mean? They want, they want it all. They want, they want to kind of like look up to them and that, that they're supporting the values that they support. They want to like you said, be emotionally looked after and, and and things like that and have a personal relationship with them. So I think it's a very high cost relationship, which is what I think frustrates a lot of older leaders and people who are hiring. The boomer generation would be shocked at the extent to which people take sick leave today. Yeah, my, my dog's anxious today. So they would go to work every single day. They could be the sickest they've ever been in their life, but they'll still rock up yeah, to work. So still thing. answering emails from the surgery bed. They didn't have emails back in the day then. <laughs> you know, boomers are still in the workforce. <laughs> the other piece too, and this is like a big thing that's changed maybe in the last, I don't, I don't know if it's the last 10 years or 20 years or whenever, but certainly in comparing, you know, kind of if you're a young person entering the workforce, you now have a lot more entitlements with respect to parental leave. And I think that has injected this sense that your employer also has obligations to you so as someone who is looking after a family. And I think that's a good thing, but it does for some people when they go further than what the actual entitlements are and, and sort of then have this expectation of, well, can't expect me to do my job because like I've got kids, right? And I think that is that that mindset does kind of creep in for some people. Yeah. But I, I mean, I see that 
just on that point though, I do see that in the older generation as well. It's it's more kind of a type of person that abuses all entitlements. <laughs> we all know the type, right? And I think that um, there are people that are, are managing a million and one health issues, both personally or for someone in a carer capacity. And uh, it gets to the stage where you just don't even know. You don't even know how much is legitimate, what to feel, how to help. And there's, it does get a bit tough. Uh, sick so, dogs and all this kind of stuff. You know, <laughs> my cat's got yeah acupuncture. I, I used to, I used to have someone, and um, their dog was anxious all the time, and had a had a um, psychological, like a clinical issue with their anxiety, and was on meds. And um, let's just say a lot of leave was taken for uh, for canine care. Don't dog leave. I mean, I don't. you got to log it in the system differently. I think at the end of the day. You know, the, the whole having, you know, work, I mean, and this has changed because, you know, maybe 50 years ago, you didn't have like dual income households. So you just had one person looked after kids and all the household disabilities and one person went to work. But now you've got, you know, two people in the household going to work. So someone's got to do it, which means some, you know, <laughs> someone has to have some sort of ability to take the day off to look after kids or whatever if they need all those expectations maybe we should now pivot um to a broader conversation about resilience so a hypothetical scenario for you if our generation went to war with gen z who would win like uh, like literally a war troops trenches that kind of thing or between gen y and gen z yeah z sorry oh definitely gen y definitely definitely but i think that would be um the, uh, they'd be calling in sick every day on the trenches, <laughs> wouldn't they? The noise would, um, yeah, they'd be complaining to the to their supervisor about. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm trying mud. to I'm trying to kind of take it a little bit of a framework with this, and I think you know wars are usually won by like usually depend on two things, right? Resource and organization, right? So resource, gen, you know, Gen Y tick, we're older, we have built up more resource. And we still remember lessons. We're still close enough to have lessons from older generations that perhaps have perhaps have evaporated for Gen Z. And then second comes organization. So do we believe that millennials can organize themselves better than Gen Z? No, absolutely not. You don't think so? Like, no, hell no. Because for all the reasons we've discussed, like, can't, like they'd be wanting to like dial in remotely from their bedroom. Well, no, I'm saying we, as in we're the Gen Ys. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. sorry, we would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'd want to fight the war on Zo on Zoom or something. <laughs> but they, they could, uh, for what they lack in physical presence, they can make up in cyberbullying. Um, they'd, they'd be like, um, "Do you, do you want to um, fill this poll out um, so we can rank the choices? Should we? Um, <laughs> which weapon should we? <laughs> Don't knock the poll. We need the poll. But uh, the, they they would have wouldn't have to worry about any kind of codex or um, coded displays because we can barely understand how they talk now anyway, right? So. That would be that would be an advantage for Gen Z. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I think to be fair to to the question, I don't think we're actually as Gen Ys particularly novel or outstanding as a generation. In fact, I think we're probably the most vanilla, boring kind of no. lack of you know. I mean, when Gen, you think about it, Gen like X. what do we come on? Gen X has like grunge and kind of stuff like that. You know, I we we we've just got what do we have? We've got like freaking taking photos of your cheer balls or whatever right well maybe to extend the analogy like it, it, you, you could probably defeat an army of gen z's and gen y's five to one if you had like the greatest generation right oh, gen y's i reckon they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to communicate 
because they wouldn't know how to use technology. <laughs> they just fucking knife us with their bayonets. <laughs> That's all right. By the time they got to the person who was communicating, uh, we, well, we'd while be free. We, while we would, us and um, Gen Z would still be like, um, yeah, debating who should be, um, who should be on the front line. We have all the advantages of Gen X just without the property portfolio. To be totally honest. <laughs> We we grew up with grunge as well. Oh, but we didn't live and breathe grunge. That's the difference. Yeah, well, I, I have a few flannels. Yeah, but like just just as a broader point of resilience and like I, I was slagging off like Gen Z music before and actually I'm just trying to – where, where would ta- – like Taylor Swift is probably like old, right? She's not, yeah, she's she's not Gen Z. Yeah, so she's 1989, like – right? Okay, right. So, yeah, it, it, it's quite incredible when you think about it because I always have this vision of her being like this really young starlet or whatever. It's like Nikki Webster. Uh, She'll always be that tiny, <laughs> tiny chick. Do you, actually, on that long video I watched of the, you know, the, the number ones or whatever, it had like Miley Cyrus singing. I can't remember what the song was, but it Party was- um, I mean, Yeah, probably. But it was like 2008. I was like, is she like, was that 15 years ago? Because like in still in my mind, like- <laughs> Miley Cyrus today is like this young kind of starlet or whatever, right? Yeah. It's like um, Hilary Duff, you know. <laughs> She's like frozen in time when she did that uh, series, you know. I'll tell you who's not frozen in time. Amanda Bynes, right? Ooh. So I, I think she was like mid- 2000s or something she was in some movies or whatever. Yeah. But she's like um, Lindsay Lohan but like on steroids or maybe on harder drugs, I don't know. And she's like. <sighs> Fuck, full off the rails. Yeah. Well, she she was kind of always like a, a Lindsay Lohan light. No, um, but she's now like well overtaken <laughs> Lindsay Lohan. <laughs> she's made Lindsay Lohan look like... Um, yeah, but um, doesn't just, she... Like before we go into hard, I think she does have some mental disorders uh, that she's dealing with. True. <laughs> but don't they all like, like in reality? <laughs> like, let's be honest. The only difference between her and Lindsay Lohan is that she didn't get to find that um, uh, Arabic uh, billionaire to look after her. So. What I was going to say about Taylor Swift and our younger generation not being res- um, like sufficiently resilient is... Do you know that like that Taylor Swift song "Antihero"? Do you do you know that one? Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. So, um, for anyone who's not familiar with that song, or l- less so the song, but probably more the, the video clip, this whole song is about her kind of maybe self image and how she sort of sees herself and as like you know a failure or whatever. Anyway, so there's this scene in the in the video clip where she stands on a set of scales and the scales read out fat fat you know because like the whole theme is like this is her like body image and all this sort of stuff right and it seems like a very sort of appropriate scene in the context of the video and it caused this massive controversy because apparently that was like fat not yeah that was not acceptable for 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 gen z again i'm saying gen z (laughs) because i don't think anyone else was complaining about it it's progress of a kind right but it's obviously there's collateral damage when it when you try to to make strides in this right well, it's just overreacting. Like, like, let's call it spade a spade. You might be able to say that was not a good, like, editorial decision to include that, right? And you can say the film clip wasn't as good as it could be because of that scene because it was a bit tacky or something, right? But to get up in arms about it as though it's so offensive and it's – if you're genuinely offended by that or you genuinely find that that triggers you in some kind of emotional way or causes you distress, then – the way you've been brought up and the way you engage with society points to you not being very resilient, which well, is 
a weakness. It's not a. It's not some. It's not progress. That's us becoming weaker as a society if we can't, you know, expose ourselves to a, you know, a, a cartoonish video clip with someone standing on a scale and it's saying fat instead of a number, right? Well, two things come to mind. Number one, I thought you said that Gen Z do not watch uh, music video clips. So how would they know about this in the first place? <laughs> well, <Number> exa- <laughs> and even more to the point, right? Like it's like convicted outrage, right? Well, this is where, this is where I'm going, right? So number two, I, I do think it's the parents, right? And the virtue signaling that comes with it. That I, actually, sometimes I think that um, where, it probably come, where it probably started is a well-meaning mother that has um, or father that has caught on to an issue perhaps they have personal impact for that translates to something like I can imagine a situation where you know their child or whatever was had called a fatty or some un- unacceptable language or hurtful language, and then they're now on a crusade to try to denormalize that language in media, right? Like it's not that they're hurt and they're like crying on the floor, but they're now social warriors and they're and they're they're fighting the good fight. And I think that's kind of how they might bend it. And you know, I'm not saying I believe in that angle, but I do think. There's a part of it like that, right? In the same way that, you know, Meghan Markle has the famous story of when she first became a feminist and she called, you know, she wrote into the to the ad of the dishwashing liquid and it's like only the mother, only the woman doing it and they removed that. And that was a defining moment for her fight for equality, you know, like it's a similar thing where they spin it and they don't say, it's like, I'm not fragile, I'm not being oversensitive, I'm fighting for change. I'm calling these bastards out. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, just as an aside, I think if it's that, then like they've chosen like the worst possible example of it, like where in the sense that she's drawing attention to that very same issue, right? In that like not feeling good enough or whatever. There will be some false positives, all right? <laughs> <laughs> but I think for people to have that attitude towards the language and the word, they have to come from a starting point that this is some sort of negative thing. When you take out all of the harshness of the world we live in. And that, and again, like, I mean, I, I said before, like you could judge it as a poor editorial decision or whatever, but like of all the harshness in the world that we live in, it's like, you know, like people, especially young people are like this notion that like kids are anti-fragile and young people and, and humans, we're anti-fragile. So we, we thrive off being challenged. And if we're not challenged, you know, we, we don't build up any, resilience to maybe things which are a bit more um, problematic Um, we've got no defenses for them because we can't even handle watching a video clip yeah with someone saying fat on it so what happens if someone calls actually calls you fat like what defenses do you you know do you have so taking all of those rough edges out of life i I think is um you can't not a good yeah you can't wrap your kids in cotton wool that's for sure but then again like i i do not believe that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger like in that sense, it crosses over, right? And a really clear example of that is our parents' generation, or maybe even a bit further on in age, getting the belt and getting physically disciplined. Like, that does not make you stronger, right? Like, I think it's proven to cause all sorts of issues. And there's a reason why we don't do it anymore, you know, because we know better. So there's not across the board that the rough edges in life or these more kind of harsh practices does make you stronger. And that's a, that's a good example for me of where that well, thinking goes wrong. But, you know, at the same time, some things do build your resilience up. Like exposure therapy is is a way of, it's like a therapeutic tool to deal with people's phobias and things like that. It is, it is a thing. And, you know, being 
able to realize that you're, I mean, I think when you're talking about something that actually does cause harm, that's different. But I guess what we're actually talking about is something that doesn't actually cause you harm. And, you know, being called something, like being called fat, for example, which is like many steps removed from what was in this film clip, doesn't actually harm you. So you you can absolutely prepare yourself. You can absolutely prepare yourself to hear things like that and for it to be water, water off a duck's back. Yeah, I agree. That's why I said it's like not all things, right? There's a, there's a, there's yeah, a yeah. continuum of um, toughening up your kid, right? Just as a bit of a sequel to our Boomer episode where we talked a bit about housing and inequality and wealth and things like that. What, maybe approaching it now from the younger generation, is this the generation that no one in the history of mankind has ever had it as good as them? I mean, it depends whether they bought Bitcoin when it was first released. <laughs> That's their only option out now. It all comes, wealth generation all comes back to gambling in some way, shape or form. No, look, I think that in the same way that uh, maybe millennials have chosen to buy expensive avocado-laden brunch dishes as a way out, I think Gen Z will have their own way of coping with the realities and their dissolution with um, the state of finances, right? And they find themselves in a in a real tricky spot, obviously. But at the end of the day, I, I still think like it's all just transfer, right? And it's all about your cohort, you know, like it's it's also for me hard to feel that sorry for, for young people in general. Like um, as you get older, like I, I, I don't really spend too much time worrying about it because they're smarter than they've ever been. So I want to unpack one aspect of it, which is recently, you know, it, it's been framed as like a rental crisis, right? You know, few rental properties yeah. and rent, rents have gone up and it's framed as this really bad thing affecting young people. Do you know how much my fucking mortgage bill has gone up in the last like six, six to nine months? Like, fuck off with your rental crisis bullshit. <laughs> this is awkward because um, I'm a renter. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I brought it up. Hey, I'm just nothing like a bit eight. I'm just transitioning right now, okay? But like this is an interesting kind of dynamic, right? Because objectively speaking, on some metrics, young people coming of age now or that you know are in the workforce now, they will like never had it easier, right? And th- and that's true in some dimensions, but in some other dimensions it's sorta of not true. Like getting into the housing market and well explain the first point like for, for what, what what do you mean by that well their their labor incomes are high like i mean they the things that they're purchasing power that they have it, it's it, it's it's high like it's higher than any other generation before them and not only that but they also have, you know encounter very low unemployment rates as well so it shouldn't be any challenge getting a job. But you just said the music sucks. Well, they but they don't know it, so that's like even even better. So they're even better off because they don't even know their music sucks. Plus, they can also listen to our really good music. Yeah, and half of them are bisexual too, so their mating possibilities oh. have doubled, possibly oh, even geez. tripled when you throw in the other the other situations. What about uh, skipping back to the workplace? Have you noticed this thing where they put their pronouns on on their um, signature, their email signature? Yeah, yeah. Like, do um, you do that? I don't do it because I just, um, I don't. <laughs> you just couldn't pull yourself to do something so crazy. I, I can't. Something yeah. so. Man, I, I'm just, I just got over the whole rainbow thing on my signature. Now you, now you want this too, too soon, all right? No, but um, in all seriousness, we're quite a conservative 
company, I believe, that's trying to really hard to try to not be known as so conservative. But as a result, is there's a stark difference between the the younger employees who choose to have pronouns clearly displayed um, on their email signatures and things like that, or profiles, than kind of the older generation, because it's not a company policy like it is in some Silicon Valley tech houses and things like that. But it's, it's gaining popularity. I've never heard anyone introduce themselves at any of my kind of day-to-day meetings though it hasn't you know hasn't penetrated that part of of my day yet in the same way like Uh, a a welcome to country might have i just wonder like like the the whole um pronouns thing on a on an email signature just to me seems like the ultimate yeah we're fucking jed said we've arrived (laughs) right we're on the scene we should have never opened up the signature access for anyone to do their own (laughs) if you if you don't if you assume my gender i'll fuck you over now you're trending brah now you're fired brah but i mean I've, I've obviously like the problem is right i have never like anyone that's ever had a, a pronoun on their signature it's always just vanilla shit it's always just he him or he her i'm like buddy i, yeah. I can i can work that one out you know like okay if you got something a bit more out there like you know the one that starts with the x and stuff okay fair game i might not get that one straight away but if you just like a he him she her like oh for God's sakes, you know, it's like it's like saying, you know, don't worry, I'm not Aboriginal on the bottom of your, like, I just don't get it. I suppose the counter argument to the case you've just presented would be that, well, we're doing this to normalise this. So that they feel comfortable. For the people to, who, yeah, yeah, so it's not this bizarre, weird thing that, you know, people who have different gender pronouns have to do. But like... At the same time, I mean, I think like I'd, I think if you would ask them, right? Like, well, if someone uses the wrong gender pronoun, like, it, how big a deal is it, really? Well, this is a real conversation, you know, especially when you're opting in to use some really, <laughs> really bizarro ones that none of us and most people don't that that are, that are really rare and uncommon. Like, yeah. Well, you know, this is not a transgender episode, and obviously, we want to approach that topic with a little bit more care and love and everything. But ah, I, I would say though that my I remember back when this whole thing started and like, you know, years ago and someone I knew had it on there that I knew well had it on their signature. And I asked them, I'm like, what is this? Like, why, you know, and we got to talking and I I said to her, like, why are you, like, why are you doing this? Kind of like, why, you know, as someone, like, why do you think this is going to, to help? And I just came to the conclusion that they didn't really know. Like they didn't, they didn't really know. It's like, well, have you, like, do you know any transgender people? Do you know this is what they want? Like, why, like, why do you think you're doing this or why? And it kind of just came down to like, I saw it somewhere and I wanted to be an advocate. Yeah, basically. Right. And then like, for sure. In its heart, like at its heart, that's okay. Right. Like I get the intent, but to me, it's just like horribly misguided and co-opted. It's like, if you don't really, really understand what it's trying to do, no one's really explained it to you. It's kind of like, you know, like in The Simpsons where they're like, Gabo, Gabo, Gabo. Like if it's just to draw attention to what the hell Gabo is, you know, okay, fair game. Uh, you know, it's like a little plot twist, a cliffhanger at the end of your email that people will ask you, you know, ask me about uh, intolerances. That's kind of okay. But you didn't even explain it like that. You don't know what it is. You don't know this is something that transgender people want. Like at that time, like I'm talking about at the time when it first emerged, there's a lot of people that are just like, okay, I want to. I want to jump on this one to show my support, but I don't really know what I'm supporting. Um, no one's really explained it to me, and I don't really know how to explain it to other people. I think that's a terrible, <laughs> terrible recipe for like you know promoting any kind of social change. Yeah, no, I I agree. 
Have you ever experienced something where a younger employee was kind of making fun of you or gaining power on you on the only way they really knew how, which was insinuating that you weren't with it or you weren't cool? No, I eat all my enemies for breakfast. <laughs> and there's uh, discriminatory hiring practices. 